about something new today. <laughs> and uh the way you looked at me just scared me. <laughs> no, it's funny cuz it's uh <laughs> this actually came up because of work in a roundabout way. So I've been listening to this is a really good time to be a uh spooky music listener. And since we just talked about your autumnal Halloween playlist, I was like thinking about that. Um so one of the things that I've been really into lately and like I've been telling everyone and their mother and I've been like I'm really into the band Ghost right now. Right. And they're one of their bigger hits. So they have Mariana Cross, which is like a TikTok hit right now. Um it's actually their first like billboard well, they had other billboard hits, but this is like their first one that's like hit like diamond or, you know, one of those okay. like record type things. And they've been around for like ten years. But I <laughs> found their song uh dance macabre and i was like excellent like this is my jam and uh i was talking to our coworker about uh the song dance macabre and i said you know back in the day i had to play a song uh in orchestra called dance macabre but i didn't call it dance macabre i called it dance macabre because of course you did because you're bad and also because and i think i think people thought that i was like joking because <laughs> i was like oh that dance macabre but i also called it that because i'm like that's how you spell it <laughs> that's how you spell it and <laughs> it wasn't until I, I was listening to an audiobook version of dance macabre by stephen king that i went oh huh. oh <laughs> So anyways, circling back, good time to be a spooky music fan, of course. Duran Duran, random 80s, but you know, who doesn't like Hungry Like the Wolf? Excellent band. Um, They are coming out with a Halloween record this year. Oh, hell yeah. And they have a song called Dance Macabre, and I went, ah, I know how that, and I was listening and watching their weird AI music video today, and... They don't pronounce macabre the same way we pronounce macabre. And then I found out that there is a British pronunciation because it's a French word. Correct. And it's a uh, dance macabre. But the it's it's really the emphasis is so light on the R yeah. that you can just drop it. Like, but Le Miserable. Le Miserable. Um, but they use that extra in the Duran Duran song. They use that extra like syllable of the R-E. And I was like, is that right? And I'm like, oh, yeah, it is right because they're not American. Yeah. So that's what I learned today is it's pronounced two different ways. Do, 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 do. The more you know. I love it. <laughs> I didn't learn anything new, but I we haven't I haven't been with you here to do this for a while. And so uh, I forgot like I had a story like a real life spooky story to tell you and I was oh. saving it for this oh. so it's gonna start off sounding like really terrible this next thing that I say but I don't mean it that way okay but my uncle passed away recently yes and that's not the spooky story and that's not fun it's very sad but <laughs> at at his little like memorial service you know we we do like the visitation and then you go to the funeral home the day of the funeral and then you go to the cemetery and he was a veteran so he was buried in a military uh, cemetery so that was kind of a hike and then everyone came back to a VFW 
to like eat afterwards and so we were sitting there at the vfw and my cousin so this is her father who passed away my cousin and her best friend live like that's her person Mm -hmm. like i have my person who lives all the way across the country (laughs) in california that beth is aware of i don't have a code name for her yet i don't know i'll have to ask her if she wants one or if she just wants (laughs) me to say her name but this this is my cousin's person and um she is from new york city and she's got this like really cute like new york accent and she talks like this but she's adorable and she like works in aviation and so it's just like every time she tells a story it's very engaging and so i had asked about her daughter who is two and she said before she flew in for the funeral because she was here for like a few days before while they were getting everything ready Mm -hmm. she was putting her daughter to bed and like she was not falling asleep and she has one of those like video um like baby cam Mm -hmm. what are they called the like monitors yes baby monitor thank you i was like what's the real word for this not how you describe it in your head secret baby tv So she has like a video monitor and she was like watching her and she's like, why is she not going to bed? She's like standing there like she's talking, like she's laughing, like there's somebody in the room with her and there's like no one there. So she goes and she's like, child, what are you doing? And she was like, the man. And she was like, what man? And she's like, that man. And like pointed to the ceiling and Mm. there's like nothing there. And her mom, like, believes in, in, like, angels and things like that. And so she just, like, kind of was going down the list of, like, well, is it is it this person? No. Is it this person? No. Is it Poppy? Which is her grandfather. So mm-hmm. this is the baby's, like, great-grandfather. And she's never met him, but she's seen pictures of him. And she was like, yeah, it's Poppy. And she was like, oh, okay, we'll say goodnight, Poppy, and, like, go to bed. <laughs> and then she was telling her mom about it. And they were, like, looking at pictures, and they, I mean, like, they walk past pictures that are in their house, and they say, like, oh, good night, Nana, and, like, they say good night to people that she's never met. So she knows these people from their pictures, and she, like, showed a picture of Poppy to the baby, and that was not who she saw, and so then she was like, wait a minute, and she brought up a picture of my uncle and my cousin, she said, is that Poppy? And the baby said, yeah, and so he had never met the baby but he mm-hmm. always said before he passed away that he wanted to get to new york to meet his new york granddaughter Aww. because she's like part of their family mm-hmm. he thinks of her as like his this third kid and so we think he just like stopped in to see the baby <laughs> on his way out so that was like a little spooky yeah. and then that reminded me of I mean, I don't remember this, but my brother has told me this story multiple times. My brother is like a decade older than me. And when I was two, so he was 12, our grandpa passed away. Mm -hmm. And I was at that time terrified of the basement. I would not go down there unless like one of my parents carried me down there Mm -hmm. and stayed with me. And it's not like a scary unfinished basement. It's a finished basement that is like our family room. But I wouldn't go down there by myself. And my brother was downstairs. And I came down the stairs by myself at two and just stood at the bottom step and stared at him. And he was like, what? And I said, Grandpa's dead. (laughs) And he was like, what? WTF? What is going on? And then the phone rang. Mm -hmm. And it was them calling my parents to tell them that my grandpa had had a heart attack and died. 
and I don't remember this at all. I but well, you know what they say that like with the paranormal, ghosts and fairies and all the other realms of those things that children see them because they're more open-minded. So I fully believe that. I think it's also because this is like so woo-woo witch in the woods, and we're probably gonna like lose our our listeners now because I'm a nut job. I also think it's because when you're like younger, you are closer to the veil. Like you are closer to that part of existence. Oh, like we're talking almost like poltergeist here. A little bit, yeah. yeah. yeah and then as right. you get older, you are further. And then when that's you get when you get older, you get closer to it again. Yes, that's what they. That's what she explains in poltergeist. That's why she said she's got a light. Yeah. Man, we mention poltergeist a lot. I know. <laughs> Anyways, I have a similar spooky story that my mom's told me. Because my mom, back in the day, we did not have video camera baby monitors. We had the old school ones where you could just hear the baby. Yeah. Um, or an older sibling. Go check on them. Yes. And uh, my mom said that when one of my younger siblings was a baby, um, her bedroom was below the uh, baby's room. And we actually... like we would have been in the baby's room but we were all sleeping and my mom my dad worked has always worked like third shift um pretty much my entire life and so he was not home and my mom heard my younger sibling crying well she heard a man talking to the baby and my mom's like what (laughs) the heck no thank you like soothing and the baby stopped crying so then my mom told my dad about it and we think that it was my grandpa who also passed away in my childhood home so everybody that haunts the you know household is family got it so it's like again you know you only hear these things when it happens with like children but it's never it's spooky but not so spooky like there nobody's in danger right so anyways guys <laughs> Welcome back to the Lake Erie Library. And those of you that are still here and not completely writing us off because yes. I just told you I am a child psychic. <laughs> and I'm a uh, small medium at large. <laughs> uh, so once again, I am Beth. And I'm Britta. And we welcome you today. We're uh, getting into spooky season, so obviously... That's why I was talking about all of uh, my spooky band name drops because I'm always on the lookout for new music, especially new spooky music. Um, But today we are going to dive into a spooky story to kick off uh, some more spooky season. And today we're going to talk about a little place called Malabar Farm. Which before I knew anything about Malabar Farm, doesn't Malabar Farm sound like the name of a candy bar? It does sound like it. Like, I had a Malabar Farm today. Mm, love that nougat. <laughs> I feel like it would have nuts thrown in there somewhere, too. Like, kind of like a Snickers, but... A Snickers meets a Milky... No, not a Milky Way. Uh, Three Musketeers. Yeah. Like, if yeah. you combine the two of them. Listen, Mars, we're not telling you how to do your job, but just putting it out there. But I am, and make something vegan so I can eat it, because I can't have dairy anymore. Yeah. Neither can Beth's tater tot, so so. hook us up. (laughs) Well, we can't have nuts in there either. It has to be a nut-free version. That's right. I'm definitely remembering that and not accidentally poisoning your child. (laughs) Oh. 
Anyways, so Malabar Farm is a state park in Richland County. It's actually near Mohican State Park, and it's a, like, less than 10-minute drive, maybe 10-minute drive, as, you know, we like to say in Midwestern. It's only a 10-minute drive away from Mansfield Reformatory. Yeah, don't ask me how many miles anything is, but I can tell you uh, how long it takes you to get there and what's on the corner you need to turn at. And what big sea city it's nearby in Correct. the state of Ohio. Yeah. Yeah, we're this many minutes away from Cincinnati. We're this many minutes away from Columbus. Anyways, this is this is a really big state park. It's 580.6 acres and it was built in 1939. So, Lewis uh, Bromfield, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning author, actually bought the land in 1938 and then he bought like two more adjacent farms um, in 41 and 42 and then that's kind of where he retired but because he is a famous author and playwright he was like rubbing elbows with Hollywood so he was friends with like a lot of people so Malabar Farm actually came into prominence first because because of its kind of celebrity connection like Shirley Temple came and like milked cows and Louis, or James Cagney came and like did farm work. Yeah, James Cagney and Humphrey Bogart were a lot of the movies they were in were written by him. Mm-hmm. I'm questioning if it's Lewis or Louis. I can't remember. That's fair. It's uh, anyway, but they were in they were in a lot of movies that he had written the screenplays for. And Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall actually got married yeah, in his so house there. So that's like the big first big claim to fame is you know it's this beautiful sprawling um beautiful sprawling farmland in the plains and kind of rolling hills of Ohio which if you haven't been down there like once you get past a part of Ohio little little uh geology lesson once you get past a certain part of Ohio there were no glaciers sitting there so there's actual topography and hills and you know some Appalachian like just foothills and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah this is like sort of the the southwest end of Appalachia Appalachia. Mm-hmm. Depending on where you're from you pronounce that differently. Um, but the the cliffs that like stopped the glaciers are like actually like above Malabar Farm. Right. Yeah. So anyways beautiful beautiful scenery he was friends with Humphrey and Lauren but well, by proxy, Lauren Bacall, but um, <laughs> Lauren Bacall was only 20. <laughs> Humphrey Bogart was on his, this was his, in 1945, he was on his third marriage and it was not going well. And um, of course, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall were in a movie together and they fell in love on the set. So, his divorce finalized and then 11 days later him and Lauren Bacall came to Ohio and decided they wanted to get married but in a like pretty intimate ceremony so they're like who do we know that would have like somewhere very pretty to get married in but kind of secret and they're like oh we know uh Louie here yeah good old Bromfeld and so 11 days after their divorce they came to Ohio and then they got married May 21st in 1945. Bromfield actually gave them as a wedding present boxer puppies. 
I love that. And uh, today, if you wanted to visit Malabar Farm, you can. And they still have the room that Lauren Bacall and Humphrey Bogart honeymooned in, essentially. Like, all set up that you can, like, tour. Cute. And he also gave them an acre of the farm as a present. So, what a nice (laughs) gesture. Like, here's some farmland. Yeah. Do you know how he came to purchase that land? I don't. So, he actually had been living in France with his family in, like, the 1930s when a lot of stuff was sort of ramping up over there and he was like you know what I don't feel safe we got to get out of here and so he came to the U.S. and he was looking for like essentially that same concept like an idyllic out of the way place where my family can like sort of be safe and we can move there and that is how they purchased that land in that area. So this all sounds lovely um (laughs) But, unfortunately, it is also this uh, site of tragedy and sadness and murder. Murder. Moida. Moida. And, no, it's not because of Louis Bromfield. I don't... I've never heard of him haunting Malabar Farm. He passed away, like, happy and at peace. He, uh, a few of his books, like, I mean, he won... He won the Pulitzer Prize for, is it Pleasant Valley? Yes. And so that is, that actually touches on some of what we're going to talk about Mm -hmm. today. Um, But a lot of his books are just about that area of Ohio in general. And he is also known as like sort of the forefather of modern conservation. (laughs) So a a kindred soul for Beth. But, um, But yeah, I've never heard anything of him like haunting and he is not involved in any of the scandal no no so uh the and just as a small aside before we get into it we're i'm going to name drop ghost hunters again because they did a episode on malabar farm actual ghost hunters or ghost adventures ghost hunters okay sci-fi show that i will know where to look for it and it's called family plot amazing yes so (laughs) i love a pun just wanted a small aside before we dive in so the story goes that in this started in the this actually started before so we bought the land in 1938 what i'm telling you occurred in 1896 so on on this farm land uh in 1896 there was a family living there um with one daughter named uh, celia or celie rose and um so there was mom dad and then she also had a another sibling i think it was she had an older brother named walter who lived with them and then she had an older sister named julia prior to the rose family moving to this area Mm-hmm. They had lived elsewhere in Ohio, and Julia got married and then died relatively soon after she had gotten married. And they moved, and it's unclear if they were like moving because they wanted to get away from that memory of their right. daughter or if it was because of tensions with her oh, family that she married into. Right, right. Um, I know she had a son, and they like possibly never even met their grandson 
and his father gave him to family members and just like effed off wow and went and got a new wife so they they had lived somewhere else prior so they had a son and a daughter the daughter passed away and then they moved and then Celie came around so Celie was considered what we would call today developmentally disabled um she was considered kind of a slow learner um they would call her simple-minded back then or silly which is all very insensitive today um so i will just keep referring to her as like developmentally disabled they also called her silly because she had like a nervous tick or habit of giggling a lot and so that was also part of it people are mean so she had an infatuation with the boy next door um, and his name was Guy Barry. These are all really great names, by the way. There's, yeah, there's like a lot of really fantastic names that don't sound real in this. Like the guy that she had a crush on before Guy, his name was Clem. <laughs> and, That's uh, a good name too. I, so I, I read a book about this that's written by, uh, he's from Ohio. I'm trying to get back to the title page so I can say his name correctly. Mark Sebastian Jordan. And it's called The Seely Rose Murders at Malabar Farm. And he like really goes into depth about Seely's life like growing up. And as Beth mentioned her, it was like one room schoolhouse days. Yes. And she was like still going to the schoolhouse even when she was like in her 20s. Mm-hmm. But she only really hung out with like the first graders and... Her teacher said she never really mentally progressed further than like a six or seven year old. But then, you know, you hit puberty and you get hormones and she like went completely boy crazy. Right. Which when I was reading it, all I could think of was like Tina Belcher (laughs) from Bob's Burgers. (laughs) And so then for the rest of the time I'm reading this, I'm just imagining it like Tina Belcher like lurking in like the fields of someone's house and being like uh, <laughs> Clem I wrote you a letter cause I'm in love with you and like some of them were some of them were like mean and just laughed at her and yeah. then some of them like Clem she like wrote him a letter and he just like took it and thanked her and then never said anything about it again right right and then like Guy was generally described as being just like a kind kid and he kind of felt bad for her so he was just trying to be nice yeah neighborly because they were even if they lived like you know two miles away from they were neighbors they didn't though they only lived a couple hundred yards away from each other which for us is no big deal in the suburbs but in like pleasant valley at that time like the houses that close was unheard of right and a little bit awkward so she you know he was really polite he talked to her and she became smitten with him uh she was so smitten that she began to visit him daily and told her parents that they were going to be married um it got to the point where he she was actively pursuing him and he did like try to turn her down nicely and she just kind of didn't she disregarded it and she thought it was the parents fault yeah that they weren't gonna be together yeah his guy had a little brother named claude yeah. and claude even tried to tell her like he's not gonna marry you Celie. like he's got another girl and she was like okay well then i'll marry you and he's like i'm 10 or i'm 12 like i'm not gonna do that <laughs> but 
their parents didn't really care for Celie because after that, Claude like told his mom, right. and his mom was like, "Well, yeah, she'd marry a ten year old if she got the chance." Right. Well, I mean, as as I said, people are cruel. Yeah. And especially back then, they did not know how to. They did not understand how to interact with people that were developmentally delayed or developmentally disabled. Um, so it's not like from what I was researching, they're not entirely sure with what was the exact exci- inciting incident of like what was specifically said that uh, incited her to action. There are quite a few plays and books written about these accounts. So like even like I was researching, there was a newer play that came about a year or two ago where it's written so that there's a lot of soliloquies, but there's like them talking to you rather than interacting with each other, um, which you can go to at Malabar Farm yeah. when they put on these shows at the, Malabar Farm. The first one about this that was just called Seely was written by the same guy who wrote the book that I read. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had been like fascinated by this story since his childhood mm-hmm. when he like saw a random like news clipping that reiterated the story. And this was like in like the seventies or eighties. Right. And they he like won an award for like the Ohio Theater Council or something like that for it. And then was like, I have nowhere to put this play up. And so that's how he got involved with doing it at Malabar Farm. Which is like a little bit weird, but like also kinda cool, I guess. But yeah, I, I, from what I read, I think it was just like a proximity thing for her that like she was boy crazy. He was like a popular, good-looking guy. Right. He was nice to her. Right. They lived close enough that she could literally sit in her window and just watch him like coming and going right. from his watch house all the time. Work, like. And so it was just like he he was just there, and right. that's why she had this huge crush on him. And so she was told, essentially, both by his parents and her parents, like, you can't marry him. And in her mind, she needed to get rid of her family. Like, her family was stopping her from being with her true love. Right. And she, a a little bit about her family, her mom was kind of like the the rock of that family. Like, her dad was known for having kind of a temper he was like kind of cranky he was a civil war veteran right i've heard like conflicting things he was disabled and he got a pension for it but like he was mostly deaf he like may or may not have lost his right eye and so he was just kind of a cantankerous guy and then like mom was the one who like laid down the law and controlled things but Celie like very much wanted to be like the ma of a family so that's like people said like she used to take her baby dolls out in the woods and play with them for hours and like Mm -hmm. you just would go find her playing house and then that was her dream but nobody ever really told her like Celie you can't do that like you're different like yes you know how to cook and you know how to like sew a little bit but like you're no one's ever gonna marry you and have babies with you right and so that was like her dream for this and then she got this idea in her head because her dad told her she couldn't talk to him anymore right. and she was like okay well I'll like I'll leave him alone but don't tell ma that like I got in trouble for this and he was like okay you behave and I won't tell your ma and then like the next day he told her and then her mom yelled at her right and then after mom was done yelling at her Walter her older brother yelled at her which there's some weird speculation about Walter that maybe Walter was actually her real father but I'll discuss oh. that later Ooh. and so 
she at this point is like, well, I just got yelled at by like three people like, just for having a crush on this guy. Like this sucks. But she like toned it down. Mm-hmm. She left him alone. And then one day her parents were sitting at the table and they were discussing something that had happened elsewhere in Ohio. Do you know about this? I don't know about this part. So there was another, there was a murder that happened in Ohio wait. on a farm. Wait, wait. I might know. Well, no. Uh, okay. Go on. Go okay. on. I I might know about this. I I do know of a murder that's I think similar that to this, this murder. Would, I think that this is maybe something we can cover that story in a different episode. Okay. But this this man who had been working as a farmhand on a farm elsewhere in Ohio mm-hmm. had become infatuated with the daughter of the family who lived there. And he assumed that he needed to get rid of her family to be able to be with her. So he murdered everybody there. And then it was in the news and her family were talking about this. And the guy's name is, it's like Rami Cattell. His name's like Romulus, but he went by Rami. Mm -hmm. And so Celie had like never in her life heard of something like this before. Like, yes, like crimes of passion and being able to like, oh, like, you know, it's like star-crossed lovers. Mm -hmm. You know, all that's stopping us is our family. And if we just get rid of them, we can be together. And so... In the back of her mind, like the wheels start turning of like, wow, like all I have to do is get rid of my family. Right. And add to that, that because she was developmentally disabled, her parents adamantly drilled into her that you do not touch the rat poison in our house. We use that for potato bugs. We use that for rats. You don't touch it. Don't look at it. Don't go anywhere near it because even a teeny tiny bit of that will kill a person. Right. And, like, at one point, these two bits of information on the little hamster wheels in her brain clicked together. Right. And she started formulating. And I also read something that when she started formulating, she just, she knew that this would get rid of them, but she thought that they would come back, if that makes sense. Yeah. She did not realize that if you try to poison somebody and you succeed they're gone forever it's that it's that childlike concept that they don't quite understand that death is permanent right right yeah i mean with my tater tot uh, separation anxiety is a whole thing so development i'm like yes i clearly understand this because we play peekaboo and we think that you know we're gone if we cover our face so very similar concepts yeah so anyways um on the morning one morning in June of 1896, she laced the breakfast cottage cheese uh, with the rat poison, and her father her father died after a few day, agonizing few days. I, I got a lot of info about this. You want me to? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's hear the nitty gritty details. So, I I mentioned that her father David was disabled. So like right. he he often could not get like work done just because of his physical issues and like chronic pain Mm -hmm. um he was a miller by trade that's what his father did which is why they moved to where they did because there was a mill they did not live like on site at the mill so it's i don't know if he actually like truly owned it i mean i know when they bought it it was only in his wife's name and that was probably so that he could keep getting his pension for disability but so he worked this mill but this is also at the time where like 
gas powered things are starting to come around Mm -hmm. so the old school like water mill work was few and far between so they went long stretches of not having regular work (laughs) now you have me thinking about final destination as you adjust this microphone arm and the spring like clicks at me i'm gonna (sighs) devon sawa karate chop it out of the air but so he he was like sort of on and off with work and walter would help with that sometimes walter also was what they would call like a huckster and he would just like okay well i bought these dozen eggs from this farm and i'm gonna go sell them at a markup to this farm and then i'm gonna buy their tomatoes and i'm gonna go sell them here and that was like kind of how he got by and then they had like their little vegetable garden and their hogs and their chickens that fed them in between so her dad was like you know what like I'm feeling good I'm gonna go like do all this extra work they had like these series of ponds that are still at Malabar farm there's like there's like sediment ponds that then flow into the bigger ponds Mm -hmm. and then there's like the sluice that flows through the mill and they're all connected and so he's like I'm gonna go out and work on that and get that going we're gonna get the mill going and he had this like very active day and so he got up the next morning and was like holy crap like i am famished i am so hungry oh no i don't like where this is well i know where it's yeah going, but i don't and like so where it's going they had because like for refrigerators weren't really a thing back then right they had like the spring house which mm-hmm. was connected to like an underground spring it kept the water flowing kept things cool that's where you kept your produce and stuff and that's where they kept their cottage cheese which back then they called it something else it was like it's, it's like a an Americanized version of like the German word for it and I can't remember what it is but it's like spread case or something like that yeah yeah. and so her mom was like Celie go out to the spring house get the cottage cheese bring it in Mm -hmm. so she did and then they also had like eggs and like something else and so that morning her mom was not feeling well she had like a headache so she didn't really eat anything she ate like a little small plate of stuff uh, Walter ate a full plate, but David, who had been super active the day before, ate two full plates of this food. Oh, no. Celie ate none of it. She fixed herself a plate and didn't touch anything on it. And the only reason she fixed herself a plate is because, like, her mom yelled at her to eat something. Right. Um, and she just kind of s- stood there and watched them. They go about their day. David and Walter are, like, out of the house working her mom would take in like she would weave to make some extra money Mm -hmm. so she was like getting ready to start weaving it was like a carpet or something for someone and she starts getting ready to like weave and she's like wow I'm really thirsty Celie can you go get me some water and so Celie goes and gets her water she takes a drink and immediately vomits it back up oh and then like tries to take a drink again and just keeps throwing up Mm mm-hmm and so she tells Celie to go get her dad. And so Celie runs outside and gets her dad. And she's like, Ma's puking everywhere. Like, you got to come do something. So David comes in, sees that Rebecca is ill, is like, oh, man, like, this is bad. Right. Their normal doctor was out of town. Right. And this is the 18, 1890s. So it's not like you just drive people to the hospital like this is the we have one house doctor that goes around for like the 15 to 50 square mile radius right and, and he's 
and he's not here. He's not here. So you're so, kind of screwed. Right. So he knew he had to go all the way to Newville to see a doctor. And he like gets in there like buggy and takes off. And by the time he gets to the doctor's house, he's like, wow, I am so thirsty. Drink some water, immediately vomits it up. Oh, boy. The doctor's like, oh, this is not good. Gets him back in the buggy, drives him back to the house. <laughs> this sounds, what a terrible last few days to live. It sounds, right now, because like no one has died yet, it sounds like a Monty Python sketch. Yeah. Like people are just puking everything. And then this is unclear of if they, if it happened after they drove by on the buggy or if they just drove past him and didn't notice him. But Walter was found in a field. Mm-hmm. And he had also thrown up and he's found by neighbors. So at this point, three out of the four roses are having severe cramps, like muscle spasms, mm-hmm. cannot keep anything down. And the only one who is not affected by this is Celie, even though the doctor was like, do you feel sick? And she was like, oh, yeah, I feel sick. Right. He's she like, lied about it. And he's like, like, does your stomach cramping? She's like, yeah. But she was like, fine. And... What it is is severe muscle cramps are a sign of heavy metal poisoning, such as poisoning with arsenic, which is what is in rough on rats rat poisoning that she had mixed in with the cottage cheese that morning for their breakfast. So it is kind of terrible. David did pass first, but that's probably because he ate two full plates of it. Yeah. And... Walter hung on for like a week. Yes. So Walter, um, David died June 30th. Walter hung on until July 4th. So yeah, like essentially he lived almost a week, almost a full week after. And, but you have to think about that's a week of not being able to keep any. So he's like dying of dehydration. Yeah. Just a terrible week of suffering. Like one of their neighbors in the book that I read there was like a quote from her where she came her like mom sent her over with like a salve to like help him like rub on his Mm -hmm. lips to try to keep them moist and she said they were like turning black because he was so dehydrated and she was like I'd never seen anything like that in my life and he's like on a cot in the back room the mom is on because they couldn't get upstairs their bedrooms were like upstairs but you had to Mm -hmm. climb a ladder to get up it so nobody could go upstairs to lay to bed. So like her dad passed away on the couch and then they pulled his body into the hallway and did the autopsy <laughs> in the hallway. And it's a really tiny house. Like the rooms were really small. Mm-hmm. So more than likely, like they could just hear the whole autopsy happening Great. from where they were in the other rooms. So like mom's camped out on the couch where dad died. Right. Older brothers in the back room on a cot. Celie's just there. And so, yeah, that's like... If you, I can't imagine, I can't imagine a week of like not being able to drink anything, but also having like every muscle in your body is seizing up and right. like you are just still there. Right. So Celie's mom, while she did get sick, she didn't die, which is kind of miraculous. And probably because she ate the least amount. She ate the least amount, yes. Yeah. Um, however, Celie's mom having heard that kind of stuff and kind of put in two and two together started to question Celie about it and Celie got upset with her because she's like maybe you should move she tells Celie you should like get out of here 
and she is the matriarch and whatnot. So Celie repoisons her <laughs> again. Well, yeah, and the the one doctor had come several times to sort of check on her mom after dad and Walter had passed, and so Celie was like you know, eavesdropping on things. And the doctor said, like, you're going to make a full recovery mm-hmm. to her mom, which it, it is, it's unclear if this is like a, a knee jerk reaction or if this is a, I just have to finish what I started reaction or, or what Celie's motive right, was at this right. point. Like it, but yeah, she, Rebecca got to the point where she could sort of keep down little bits of food. And so Celie was bringing her buttermilk and bread and she would dip the bread and the buttermilk to soften it and Mm -hmm. eat it. And so she was like, you know, I'm really hungry today. Like, I I feel like I could eat. Could you get me some? And so she ate like a whole thing and it was like, just put it in the cupboard because I'll probably want more later. And so Celie poisoned the second batch of it with more of the rat poison. And... It said that her mom made a comment to her that, like, the second thing tasted different. I was going to say, I... But she still ate it. It's weird, but at the same time, this is before we have, you know, like, any real, like, things that are being preserved in any meaningful way. So... I imagine, you know, much like how people now do like the milk sniff check where they're like, hmm, the milk is like, it's supposed to expire tomorrow. Is it really expired? Let me sniff it. I imagine, same thing, they probably would sniff stuff and be like, hmm, it's like a little off, but it's probably fine. Yeah. And I don't know if it would like... Obviously, I don't know what arsenic tastes like. I I have heard uh, that neither, it neither has. Do, so. Oh no, that's cy- is it cyanide that tastes like almonds? That's what I've heard. Cyanide Something tastes, tastes like almonds. Oh, okay, yeah. so yeah, I don't, I don't know if arsenic has a taste or what. I know that the rat poison had um, like boot black mixed in with it, so it was like a weird gray color, so that you wouldn't accidentally ingest it. But like if you mixed it with other things, you probably wouldn't notice the discoloration. Some things say that she tasted it and still ate it, and then some say that she just ate it. But in any case, she started throwing up again, and at that point, she like said to Celie, "If this is your doing, God help you, child." Right. And some neighbors came because they could hear like a commotion and they had been coming to check on her. And then those neighbors ran and got like the doctor. But at this point, like she had been poisoned already, was still recovering, was not strong enough to survive it the second time. Right. And ultimately she also passed. Yes. So Celia essentially poisoned all of her family members with the idea that she would get with the neighbor, not thinking that there would be any consequences to her actions. Um, However, since it was 1896, authorities did not have, there was no actual, like all the buttermilk was ate, all of the, all of the rat poison was essentially consumed, that there was no, there was no evidence to actually tie Celie to doing the murders. Right. They searched the house and they couldn't find the rat poison. So where she put it is a good question. Or she used all of it. I know where she put it. Where did she put it? She put it in a pepper tin and she took it outside and she hid it in a bush. And then she used the end of it 
because she knew after her dad and her brother died that the like the authorities were looking for rat poison and so she had hid it outside at that point and then she used the end of it to kill her mother and then hid the tin again and the reason they know this is because the tin was eventually recovered by somebody who was working with the authorities do you know about that i do not know okay when we get into like the court case part of it i'll talk about that so um do you know about the other people she tried to poison in the meantime? I did not know about <laughs> that. I I got the basic gist and like the the people that are and the haunting part of it. Yeah. Like, so this is also like forensic science kind of existed, but also didn't. Right. And so they did have a test then called the Marsh test that was used for testing for arsenic poisoning. Mm-hmm. And uh, the local like coroner asked for them to be able to do that test. And the like, he had to get it approved by like a middleman before someone from Cleveland could run this test. And they they denied it. Like, they're like, no, you can't test them. And, like, then when Walter died, he mm-hmm. was like, come on. Like, this is clearly poisoning. They kept saying it was food poisoning. That's And wild. he's like, this is clearly, like, poisoning poisoning. We need to test this. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, all right, you can test the fathers, but you can't test the sons unless the fathers comes back positive for arsenic. And at that point, like, David's organs had been preserved in a jar for over a week so like he he had been poisoned lived for almost a week right had his organs removed those sat for a week so now at this point it's like two going on three weeks right Uh, who's to say if that's in your system still right so they finally agreed for this and when the test results came back it wasn't just positive for arsenic poisoning it was like i i don't remember the exact wording for it but it was like an insane it was like enough to kill seven people <laughs> wait how did he how did he how did this disabled man live so long like i know he got poison and I, ate two helpings of poison cottage like, cheese they made of different stuff back yeah then. hardy folk and so his came back positive for like it was an insane amount of like heavy metal poisoning so they tested Walters and his returned like also a crazy amount because they both ate like these full plates of of it. And in the time between when her mother passed and like when they were able to get these results and like sort of start an investigation, Seely had been there was like a, a local pastor had been coming to check on her mom and she made him a chicken. And seasoned it, quote unquote, seasoned it. But lucky for him, there was another ill parishioner, so he didn't come for his regular visit. So he did not eat the poison chicken. <laughs> what happened to the chicken? I, I mean, think like she the- probably just threw it away. All right. But she baked a pie and she went next door to the Barry's house to Guy's parents. And she said, I made you this pie, but Guy's not allowed to eat any of it, okay? That's not suspicious at all. And so his dad was like, okay, thank you. And like shut the door and turned around and was like, um, do you know what this girl just did? She made (laughs) us this pie. I do not trust it. And his wife was like, absolutely not. And threw it out the back door where they couldn't see it. Like Celie couldn't see the back of their Mm -hmm. house. And when they went outside later, she saw peck marks in the pie and all of their chickens were dead in the Uh, yard. That's so sad. 
So, like, she, this is, like, not just her family. This is, like, also attempted murder on three other people. Can can I just say, and I'm not saying that Shirley Jackson, like, ripped off this. I love Shirley Jackson, but feels very similar. similar, It was the sugar bowl. Yes, very similar vibes to We Have Always Lived in the Castle, which, if you guys haven't read that book, you should. It's very spooky and also deals with poison. (laughs) Look at this rough on rats ad. I don't think it'll make it oh. bigger. Oh God. It's like awful. Oh. <laughs> Little the dead rat in the corner. Right. And they're like chasing like it's a woman chasing a woman with a broom, chasing a man with a bottle, chasing a child with a rolling pin, chasing a dog, chasing a cat, chasing a rat, and they knock over the baby in the <laughs> baby in the high chair as they're doing it. This is wild. The 1800s were wild. I guess that was just a good way of like making sure you knew it was effective. Well, clearly it was because she killed her whole family with it. They they finally get those these results back and it's clear that they have been poisoned. Right. Like without a doubt. And so now they can sort of start an investigation into it. But the problem is there's still no like direct evidence tying Seely to it. Right, it's all circumstantial evidence. Yeah. So, what I'm also trying to tell our dear listeners is this is a spook. This does get spooky at the end, but everything behind it is true crime. <laughs> you get a two for one special today of murder and ghosts. I, uh, so I know that she does eventually go to court. They're still able to bring her to court. Yeah. The way they're eventually able to arrest her is that there are some neighbors, the Allers, who take in Seely once her family is gone. And they there's like accounts from them of like she would tell people like when she finally gets arrested, she like went into like the jail cell and like sat down and was like, oh, I've been working so hard at Mrs. Allers. And Mrs. Allers like... <laughs> All she does is lay on the couch all day and read. Like, she doesn't help anyone do anything. She's so lazy. And so the Allers were, like, convinced that she couldn't have done this, though. They're like, we've known her her entire life. Like, she is not capable of this. Like, her whole family's gone. That poor girl, like, we'll take care of her. And while she's staying with the Allers, they're trying to figure out how to get a confession out of her. And this guy who's connected to, like, the local law authorities and like prosecution was like well my daughter went to school with her and they were kind of friends uh she could probably talk to her and try to get her to confess and they're like yeah okay do that and he's like okay but like you're gonna pay her for that right and they're like no and he's like oh fine all right so his daughter tracy had been like living in bellevue i think and working she came home and she had like guy kind of felt sorry for Celie mm-hmm. when they were in school like she saw that the other kids were cruel to her and that she really only hung out with like the really little kids and so she had just sort of like paid attention to her and taken her under her wing and so they were kind of friends and so the plan was <laughs> Tracy would come back not question her about the murders right away sort of like rekindle their friendship mm-hmm. and then once they were like comfortable inch her way in by saying well you know Seely, I'm in love with this boy and his family won't let me be with him and I just don't know what to do what would you do and so 
Tracy's like, okay, well, I'll go to the Allers and I'll hang out with her. And like the first day they hang out, they're walking around outside and she's like, well, you didn't have anything to do with killing your parents, <laughs> did you? And Celie's like, so subtle. No, I'll tell you more if you're still here in a week and you haven't said anything to anyone. Which so is subtle. like, what? <laughs> and so Tracy kept going and visiting with her and not following the plan at all. Like she kept trying to bring it up and Celie wasn't giving her anything. So she finally was just like, okay, well, like I'm going to stay the night at the Allers. And like Mrs. Aller was like, thank God, like there's a girl here who's actually helping me do stuff. Yes, please stay as often as you want. <laughs> and so they were spending time together and they were taking a walk and they were like walking down like the, the local roads and they walked past the cemetery where Celie's family was buried. Mm-hmm. And you could see their plots from the road and it was like freshly dug up graves and everything. And Celie like looked at it and then just like walked away, like didn't have a reaction to it didn't have like an emotional response and Tracy's like that's weird I don't like that and so then they were hanging out the next day and she was like I want to go to the cemetery Mm -hmm. and Tracy's like okay whatever let's go and she like drops down on her knees and starts praying on her parents grave oh and Tracy was like well do you miss them and she goes well I miss ma Right, she was the closest to her her yeah. mother, and I, I guess you could say her mother was the kindest to her, but you know that was the only female influence she had in her life. Yeah, and so they they that kind of like started them talking about her family, and as they walked back, they like sat on the church steps, and Celie basically confessed that she killed them, and Tracy was like. Well, I mean, you probably feel better having told someone, so that's okay. Like, I won't, I won't tell anyone. It's fine. And Celie was like, okay. <laughs> and so then she goes back home and she tells her dad, well, before this, uh, they go to Celie's old house because she was like, well, how did, how'd you do it? She's like, oh, I did it with the rat poison. And she's like, and I fooled all of those policemen too. They thought it was in the house, but I hid it good. Do you want to see where it's at? And so she showed her like the pepper box. Oh, Celie. And then she was like, do you want it? It's all gone. Like, there was just, like, the residue in the box. And at first, (laughs) Tracy's like, absolutely effing not. I don't want your, like, murder poison. Right. But then she was like, wait a minute. No, I should take this to the prosecutor. So she was like, yeah, I'll take it. I'll keep it as, like, a a memento. And Celie was like, oh, that's so nice. Like, that's so sweet that you want a memento of me. And so she takes it home to her dad. Her dad's like, let's go give this to him right now. And he's like, okay, this is all well and good. But like right now it's hearsay. She has to confess in front of someone else. So now Tracy has got to get her to tell her the same dang story. But with someone else around. So now they come up with this whole other plan (laughs) where she's going to go hang out at the Allers again with this now confessed murderer. She's just got to pretend like she's cool with it. And her dad, Davis, was going to go up into, like, the hayloft of the Aller's barn. And he's like, I'll go up there and hide. You bring her in and you get her to say it. And I'll be the witness. And so Tracy gets Celie talking. And they go into the barn. And they sit in the buggy. And Celie's, like, sitting, like, where you would sit to drive the buggy. Mm -hmm. And, like, 
Tracy said that she was like looking up in the hayloft to see if she could see any sign of her dad, but also didn't want to make it obvious. I was like, God, I hope he's up there because I don't want to have to do this a third time. Right. This is when she pulls like the original script and she's like, you know, Celie, I just, you know, like I just have this problem and I really hope you can give me some advice. There's this boy and I'm in love with him, but his family won't let us be together. And I just don't know what to do. I mean, what would you do? And Celie goes, I'd kill him. That's what I did. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, that's why I killed my my family because they wouldn't let me be with Guy. And right. that's, he helped me get the rat poison. And, and it, he's the one who told me how to do it. And and now I, I got to wait for him to get the, the medicine. And she's like, what medicine? She's like, the medicine so that I'm not. And she like used the French word for like pregnant. And Tracy was like, that was so strange that she even knew what that word meant. Right. But essentially she implied that like Guy was supposed to get her like contraceptives so that they could be together. And this is like a, so like it's a confession. They get their confession and they're able to arrest her. Right. But But it's obviously not a true confession. Right. Because because you're implicating Guy. Exactly. And then at a a later point, she was like, Tracy, I just feel so bad. I got to tell you about something I said the other day. Guy didn't have anything to do with it. I don't want him to get in trouble for something I did. And this whole time, Guy's family was like, you got a GTFO. Like, go move somewhere else. So, like, during all of this, they're like, you cannot be here. And he is, like, away. And he never even testified in the trial. Right. Which is a little sus, in my opinion. That like, so? Yes. I, it's clear, like, favoritism that they did not even, like, bring him in for anything. I, I'm yeah, not saying he was yeah. involved because I don't think he was. But I also wonder... If there wasn't something he did more than we know that led her to believe they would be together. Because so while you think he was he was like too nice and like too inviting. Well, that would be or, the nice version of it. Because she was like, he like maybe played games with her and was like wink wink nod nod. Like, yeah, we can be together. Well, just gotta get it. And the fact that she knew about contraceptives, I wonder if something happened to her that either I'm not saying it's him, but like someone if someone took advantage of her if she was you know gotcha yeah and so I'm like I we will we will probably never know but I just wonder if something did happen between them and then to save face because you know like he was the laughing stock when everybody was when she was going around telling everybody guys gonna marry me if to save face he just like lied and was like no absolutely not or if like another boy had taken advantage of her because she's super boy crazy and was like willing but didn't understand what was happening i mean or if a family member did this to her right all of this would be very hard to find out because as i said we don't treat developmentally disabled people throughout history fairly and we will never know because the things that we have on record are mostly of things that she said that put her in a more poor light there's a lot of like when she was arrested too there's a lot of like tabloid fodder written about her where mm-hmm. they took things wildly out of context and they would say like and she like laughed devilishly but this is also like that's a like a tick that's like right. a thing that she, she did right. she, she just, just giggles. giggles so like to say that she was you know like maliciously enjoying herself is maybe a stretch i yeah i when I read about this at first, I never took it as a her being malicious in intent because because it one it's a crime of passion. Like I I don't fully think 
Celie understood the consequences of her actions. Like, and they do have on record that she, like, after she does eventually get arrested, that she she thought that they would just come back, that she would eventually see her family again. Well, she's, and she said some things along the lines of, like, like, Ma, Ma told me last night that I did a bad thing and I got to repent for it or something like that, where it's, like, she's clearly, like, dreaming about her family. Mm-hmm. And she very much thought that she was going to be able to just go back to her house at some point. Like, she could not grasp the concept of, like, you are never going to be able to go home again. Right. So. Um, so she, eventually, they do take her to trial, but she is found not guilty by reason of insanity. So instead of going to jail, she's actually sent to an insane asylum or just an asylum for the rest of her life, which is very, very sad. They, one of the things they said about this in like the tabloids is the crime by this girl reveals a depth of depravity that can hardly be conceived, which actually makes it sound more malicious than, I mean, it's still, it's still murder. Like it's still murder, but it makes it sound more intentional than it is. I would say the most malicious thing is, is Celie hiding the rat poison. Yeah. Well, I think that's, I mean, yeah. That's malicious because clearly she meant to use it again. But again, we don't know if that was like, I don't know. Cause you know, she's, she's clearly like what we would say is developmentally disabled or delayed, but like a lot of the things that they talk about her too, like the doctors who came to evaluate her, whether she was like fit to stand trial or not, mm-hmm. they would say like, well, she, you know, she would stand on the corner and she would just like giggle and she would like. She was kind of like self-stimming and she wouldn't make eye contact with him. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just like, that sounds a little like on the spectrum E, Right. Which also was not like a thing back then. Right. People Definitely didn't not. have words for that or a spectrum or anything. And so I'm just like, maybe she just really had to, when she started it, she just had to finish it because she couldn't, she couldn't stop fixating on it. Right. Um, so she went to the Toledo Asylum in 1896 and then was transferred to Lima, uh, where she died nearly 20 years later. So she spent the rest of her life. She was only 20, you know, she was only 23 and then she died at like 43, which, you know, we always joke about like in the 1800s. <laughs> like, that's a long time to live. I'm a grandmother. Uh, but so she she lived a pretty sad life after that. She in the hospital though like she was like their favorite patient and so much so that she like she never behaved in a way that made them think she was like a danger to herself or anyone Mm -hmm. else to the point where they let her have her mom's locket that she gave her and the locket it had a picture of both of her parents inside of it and so they let her wear it on like a leather cord, which normally if right. you're in a facility like that, you can't have that because it's uh, it's a risk. Like you could choke yourself. You could hurt somebody else right. with it. But they let her keep her locket and she would every night she would get down on her knees and pray and she would hold it and she like squeezed it so tight that she crushed it closed. Oh. And then once she passed, one of the guards kept it mm-hmm. and like it still exists. Like somebody owns it in his private collection. Okay. 
And it had been like, essentially, he never tried to open it after she was gone because he was kind of superstitious. Right. And so it had like sort of corroded closed. But like you can see where she crushed it closed. Mm-hmm. And they were just like, she was just like very personable. Like she was very sweet. She like helped people in the facility. She prayed every night because she wanted to see her parents again. So she, yeah, like essentially she was trying to repent for what happened and now it's said that she haunts her old farm home because she never got to actually see her home for the rest of her life so as i said like her home was purchased as a part of malabar farms the mill that they worked at was torn down but that also but prior to being torn down experienced some paranormal activity especially when they were rehearsing scenes for the play that they have put on for Sealy Row. I'm like, I wonder why we're experiencing some paranormal activity. That really tracks because during her during her trial, like she couldn't focus, like pay attention to anything. Um, if they were talking about her, she would like hide her face and mm-hmm. her like handkerchief. The only time she would really pay attention to anything is if they were talking about Guy. And then she was like, boom, got my attention, staring right at you. But she, like, kind of enjoyed the intention of, like, the tabloids. And mm-hmm. when everyone was coming to check on her mom, and she was her mom's caretaker before she passed, everyone was like, Celia, you're doing such a good job caring for your mom. And she, like, ate that up. So fully tracks that if people are telling her story in a play, she'd be like, yes, <laughs> let's go. So, uh... So they say that they see a woman, they've seen a young woman sitting in the corner uh, looking out the window. One person had an interaction where they were asking about the costume performers at Malabar Farm. Uh, Malabar Farm, because it's a state park, doesn't normally have costume performers. And she herself was dressed in period garb. Um, And then... Uh, paranormal investigators have gone there and they've reported a woman screaming over their radios. Yikes. And um, they also believe that it's not just uh, Celia around, that it's like multiple family members. Um, And they've experienced lights flickering, doors closing on their own, and a few voices being caught on EVPs. So... As I said, they also have new plays and whatnot coming out. And then, you know, for something that happened so long ago, they still write about it in the news and stuff, which always fascinates me. But since it's so close to the Mansfield Reformatory, they actually, on Malabar Farm, they actually filmed a part of uh, Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. Uh, some of the scenes there. The tree. Mm-hmm. And the tree does not exist anymore. It got struck by lightning and then blew down years after that. And then, this is like a scandal in real life, the guy who had owned it and was like making commemorative items out of it and selling them, um, he had the wood from the tree uh-huh. and then somebody mistakenly like ran it through the like machinery and used it for like other stuff. And so he, like, doesn't have it anymore, so he can't make any more commemorative items. And they're like, well, when did this happen? Because are all of these things you've been selling truly from that tree? Or did you lie until we caught you Mm. and you've been, like, selling these fake pens made from the tree? Oh, my gosh. 
Uh, so they also, uh, if you if you do want to visit uh, Malabar Farm and you want to see kind of the spooky part of it and you want to visit the house of uh, Seely Rose, then um, you I you can visit it and I'm trying to see you can visit it essentially the same way. I don't think they have. It's not. I don't think it's open to the public. Like no, you can go you can and like see the, the house. Yeah. It's there. Um, and somebody owned it in between and they like redid it and it's got like really bad like 70s decor in it apparently. The author of that book he was like really invested in this story and so he like made sure that they kept like an accurate note of like how the house was set up and they kept all of the like auction details of items that were sold after the family died and Celie went to like jail and everything like that so oh. that it could someday be restored but so i apologize this newsletter says that she died at the age of 61 and i said she would have died at four so i'm not sure how uh, my math ain't mathing today so that's some brittle math yeah <laughs> she was super old <laughs> chocolate <laughs> uh so anyways the author of it he actually is speaking on this he's talking about uh, if you do go to visit the house, you can feel apparently her presence. He said it's so thick that it feels like there's just static in the room. Somebody in years past had put like a scarecrow in the window to look out as like a prank. But most often the sighting that people say is like when they're walking by, they see a young woman looking out the window and everyone assumes it's Celie, just, you know, finally at home, but not at peace because of she's still making up for for what happened just scoping out the local butts <laughs> look at that hottie shake I, it baby probably she's probably up there writing erotic friend fiction erotic friend fiction. And, uh, i don't know maybe she's discovered like ponies since then she's big into her family's chickens so maybe like Tina's very into horses. Maybe she's just got like a lot of chicken memorabilia. <laughs> my little clucky. My little clucky. Oh my god. So yeah, that that's the story of uh of Seely Rose. Again, you can visit Malabar Farm. It is open. It is open to visitors. It would be very pretty this time of year, especially leaves are changing yeah uh, pretty early they just during the covid shutdown they just redid the restaurant there which is on the site of the original like the original mill and original house the it's like the shacks or shack family Mm -hmm. um like their house got turned their house was first it was like a like a inn for people passing by on the highway and then it got turned into um a restaurant and then they redid the restaurant so that's apparently like really nicely refurbished and then there's like a little store and a gift shop and they have they're like very famous for their fudge it's a big deal so go for the fudge stay for maybe a spooky sighting yeah potentially um so yes and i'm sure i'm sure there are ghost investigators that ask to see the Sealy house so if that's something you're into, you can follow that avenue. That's not mine or Britta's bag. I, I don't have those connections. I don't know how to put you in contact with those people, but I'm sure they exist. They, yeah, they're, all you got to do is Google like 
paranormal investigators ohio <laughs> so yeah i guess that's that's what we got for you today so as i said kicking off spooky season do you got anything else you want to add about malabar farm i don't have anything else about malabar farm really that the book again that i read is the Seely rose murders at malabar farm by mark sebastian jordan um, he also wrote at least one stage play called Seely about it. Bromfield's books are very famous. There's Pleasant Valley is his most well-known. Right. All of those are probably available at your local library if you yes. would like to read those. And I think I read about it at first through one of James Willis's books, who is a local uh, author and uh, investigator, so... I think that's also how this author really, he like read a weird Ohio book and, and like the first story in it was about Seely Rose. And he was like, oh, I remember this. Like, I remember reading about this when I was a kid. And that's what fueled his fascination with it. But uh, yeah, those exist. Also reading homework for you. Remember, we are reading How to Sell a Haunted House by yep. Grady Hendrix. And we will be discussing that in an upcoming episode. So if you would like to read along or read before we spoil things for you. Most definitely. You Most still def got some time to crank that one out. Yep. <laughs> um, that's all I got. Yep. So I just want to say again, uh, thank you for listening to the Lake Erie Library. Uh, you can find us wherever podcasts are available. You can also find us on Instagram at Lake Erie eerie library e-e-r-i-e -E. uh we are working on getting on other socials for you guys yes we are on youtube now we are on youtube it's, now uh it's not us per se but it is a beautiful static image <laughs> created <laughs> by our podcast hosting site for us so if that's how you prefer to consume your podcasts we are on youtube Thank you, as always, to our wealthy benefactor. Our gracious donator. Who I always want to make up a new name for. We're, like, we're going to get there. It's not like Daddy Warbucks. It's like <laughs> Parent Podbucks. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as always, guys, stay spooky. Stay spooky.